Okay. Uh, welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Amanda Sheely. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Social Policy here. Um, and the Department of Social Policy is pleased to sponsor this event, which is Hand to Mouth, about the book, Hand to Mouth, The Truth About Being Poor in a Wealthy World. Um, when, so, so if you can tell from my, Ameri- my accent, I'm American. I also study welfare policy, and specifically I study poor mothers and their troubles navigating low-wage work and welfare. Um, and so when I heard about this, they said, do you want to introduce this? And I said, well, only if I can have a free copy of the book. And then, <laughs> again, an academic. Uh, and when I study what I study, a lot of times I'll go to parties and people will say, isn't this interesting? What do you study? And I say, oh, I study welfare recipients and poor mothers. And I get a whole barrage of questions about poor mothers. Um, and so what I've decided is after reading the book, I just need to carry one of these with me at all times, give somebody a copy of the book and say, read this, and then you can come back and ask me any other questions <laughs> that you want. Um, So that's about all I'm going to say. Tonight is set up as a conversation between the author of the book, Linda Toronto, and Rowan Hardy. Um, Rowan is a women's rights advocacy advisor at Action Aid UK and an LSE governor. Um, We'll see how long they have a conversation for, and then afterwards there'll be a lot of time for you to ask questions of your own. Um, I've been told that if you want to tweet this event, please note the Twitter hashtag. Which, or the, which is hashtag LSE Toronto. So if you tweet, please do that. Um, so on that note, I'm going to leave the stage and let the discussion start. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. I think we should probably start by doing a quick show of hands. How many people here have read the book? Grand. How many people have read the original blog? For the sake of the podcast, that's... A quarter of the room? Oh, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) Well, this is why it's interesting. Do you want to start by giving us a bit of a summary of where you were when you wrote that original blog and what it was that motivated you to finally speak up? Uh, Sure. So um, how many of you guys know the website Gawker? Okay. I'm a Gawker commenter. Um, and I was having a conversation with my friends, and somebody said, uh, so I was at the store today, and I saw a poor person with food stamps and an iPhone, which uh, in, in America is, is kind of our bugaboo. I guess uh, what I hear in London is a lot of like council housing, like people not having jobs. It's the exact same thing, where you're like, but that is how we know we can condemn you. Um, and, and what she said was, I'm kind of an upper-middle-class liberal, and I know I'm not supposed to judge people for that, but I don't exactly know why. And I went, I know this one, and I I wrote an epically long comment and hit send and kind of went away. And uh, then it went up on Huffington Post and Forbes and Business Insider, and I really thought I was just talking to my friends. And, uh, you know, something like seven million views later, Penguin said, hey, do you want to write a book? And I was like, yes, I'm not dumb. Um, And now I'm here speaking to you at the London School, which, um, you know, a little weird. Uh, But it it really was an internet comment that kind of went out of hand. And where I was that night, I was home from my second job in the day. I started my days early in the morning. I went to college. um, Then I went to my first job. And then I went home and changed. And then I went to my second job. And I was supposed to have been off work at like 9 that night. uh, But the closing cut called off. So I had to close the restaurant. And it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm my second beer in. And I see something that really just seemed kind of ignorant to me. 
um, of literally, I do not know what the situation is. And I thought, well, I'll just explain it to you then. And what I said was, you don't get to judge if you don't understand the situation. And you don't understand a situation that you have not studied or lived in. Um, If you are looking from the outside at somebody's life and you get a snapshot in the supermarket and you look at them and you go, I know everything I need to know about you and your economic situation in order to judge whether or not you're effectively spending your money, you are making a kind of a stupid decision on your own. And and I felt it behooved me to point that out. Um, <laughs> as it turns out, it did because now I wrote a book. Um, and and that really basically was it. Is 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 hey maybe maybe we aren't looking carefully enough at what's going on when we're making these decisions about other people and their lives, and we're we're legislating uh, kind of the parameters that they're going to have to work in. Maybe we need to look a little more carefully at it. There was. Back in the green room, you made a comment that there's three main questions that people ask you. Yes. Uh, and they were an interesting set of questions, and I wondered if you could repeat those questions and explain a little bit why you think those are the things that we're so obsessed with. Sure. Um, one is, why do you smoke? Or actually, where do you get off being a smoker while you are poor? Um, one is, why do you have so much sex? And one is, prove to me that you are actually poor. Um, because we don't believe you. And the reason that people don't believe me is that clearly I know big words. And um, poor people, as we all know, actually only have a second-grade education. Um, so, so where it comes from is, is my parents were actually fairly middle class. My dad worked for the same company for 35 years. My mom was a preschool teacher. Um, we had a major health crisis in her life uh, when I was young, and we moved to uh, small-town Utah. And I left home when I was 16, and I went to college, and it turns out 16-year-olds should not be let out on their own to go to college. Nobody should send a 16-year-old into a dorm situation. It's going to go poorly. Uh, and, And so I dropped out of school figuring, you know, okay, well, I'm taking out all of these loans, and I'm not doing very well. Maybe I should wait until I'm, I don't know, 18 or 19, like most kids are, and then go back. And it sort of never happened. Like, that's just not the way life went. And um, so the, the federal government decided I was poor enough that I, you know, was on welfare. I was on, on food stamps for on and off for years. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, if you can get through the federal government's red tape in the United States, you have proven everything you need to. Um, so the second one is, how do you get off smoking while you're poor? Because public money. Um, and I've got two answers for that. One, we self-medicate because we do not have access to medical care. That is the only five minutes I have to myself in a day. It's a quick hip of dopamine. All of those chemicals that are really bad for you feel really good, you guys. <laughs> and, and we take them. We take them like rich people take antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine or take a shot when they get home from work. We smoke. Just like rich people, I've seen them do it. Like, I've been to rich people places now, you guys, and I have seen them smoking. I swear to God, it's a thing. Um, and, and beyond that, I, I'm allowed to make my own decisions, right? And they don't have to be good, and nobody has to approve them. But where I get off taking public money and wasting them on cigarettes is probably about the same place the middle class gets off taking a home mortgage deduction and wasting that money on cigarettes. Or where the very wealthy get off taking a business lunch that costs $300 and charging that to the United States taxpayer and smoking their cigarettes. 
That's exactly the same place I get off taking public money and smoking. Now, thirdly, why do we have so much sex? Answer one, completely obvious. I'm not going into human biology with you guys. You're all old enough to have been there, hopefully. If you haven't, it's amazing. Try it sometime. (laughs) But the question really isn't, you know, it's why do you have so many kids? For the same reason anybody else does, dude. We like having families. We're humans. We're humans. We, we enjoy families. It's a thing. We, we do that sometimes. And it's not um, because of any economic indicators. It's because we have space in our family for another person. Because our family is not complete. That is why we have children. Now, occasionally, we have kids because we accidentally got pregnant. Now, let me show of hands how many of you guys know somebody who's middle class or wealthy that has a family member or a friend who accidentally got pregnant that one time. Right. So, you know, kind of exactly the same thing because as it turns out, no matter how much money is in your bank account, you're still a human being. And you're prone to human frailty and foibles, just like everybody else. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. The difference between a poor person's mistake and a wealthy person's mistake is that a poor person cannot afford to cover it. If you develop a drug addiction, which we know happens at the same rate in the upper and lower classes, we just pick different drugs. Poorer people are more likely to use street drugs. Richer people are more likely to use prescription drugs. If you develop a drug addiction and you are wealthy, you go to rehab on a gap year and nobody ever finds out about it. If you are poor and you develop a drug addiction, you wind up on the side of the street waiting for a spot to open up in a program. So our mistakes are visible. And they hurt us for years. The repercussions of the exact same mistake are going to have a very different effect on the life trajectory. So when you look at poor people and you're saying, why do you do all of these things? What you're actually saying is, why aren't you more perfect than everybody else? Because we would like to not see your mistakes, please. It's very impolite of you to show us your mistakes. And that is the answer to the first three questions that I always get on any radio program or live appearance in the last two weeks while I've been doing the book tour. <laughs> I think as well, one of the things that comes, that you explain very well in the book is the re- cyclical relationship between powerlessness and poverty, um, and how once you get into that cycle, it's really hard to break out of. How, how did you find that in your experience? Well, I mean, I, I was stuck there for a decade. Like, look, nobody dreams of growing up and working two essentially meaningless part-time jobs while collecting welfare, right? Like, no kid dreams of that. And nobody would stay there if we had better options. But what you find is you're so busy trying to make it through today and pay your electric bill and pay your rent and get your dishes done and get to all of your shifts and figure out when your shifts even are because your schedule is constantly changing that you don't have time for anything like uh, a life of the mind or self-improvement or thinking past tomorrow. Because if you think past tomorrow, you have to think past tomorrow. And that's just really depressing. Right? And not only that, it's out of your control. Because if I'm thinking about today, I can control what happens to me today. Tomorrow, my heater might break, my car might break, the metro might break down, I might get fired, I might get laid off. Any number of things could happen tomorrow that are completely out of my control. There is no point in me gaming out tomorrow unless I'm prepared to game out every possible eventuality. And as it turns out, we're really busy and we don't have time to game out all of those eventualities. So what you find is you're just kind of waiting for for things to pop up in front of you. And when they do, you take them. And sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't, but it doesn't really matter because you don't have time to, to, to think about what could possibly happen. I mean, look at me. I wrote a book, okay? And I was working at a Burger King. 
do you think, in my wildest dreams, I thought, you know what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> I'm going to leave this comment on Gawker, and then I'm going to be in Forbes. Why would I think that? Why would anybody think that? That's silly. And not only that, it wrecks your sense of, of self to hope every day and know that that hope is probably invalid because regardless of how many of us they pull up and give book deals to, the toilets are still going to have to be scrubbed and the whoppers are still going to have to be assembled and the service industry is still going to have to be staffed. We need us. We need me. We need all of my friends. You need us to be on the bottom so that everybody else's lives can run smoothly. That's kind of the whole point of a cyclical economy, is to say, to have winners and losers, you have to have winners and losers. So instead of looking at those of us on the bottom and saying, why aren't you doing any better, what we need to be doing is looking at people on the bottom and saying, hey, thanks for taking one for the team, guys. We appreciate you. You know why? We love swanky houses. And all of you working together for our profit margins are what get us those swanky houses. So in exchange... We will make it so that sometimes you have time to think about philosophy. We will make it so that sometimes you have time to listen to music. Sometimes you can have a beer with your friends without feeling guilty about it. Sometimes you can have one nice thing so that we can have a lot of nice things. And if you can do that, you will find a whole lot fewer of us writing angry, angry screeds on Gawker. <laughs> One of the, I, I guess that leads to one of the other things in the book is that you don't make a lot of policy recommendations beyond my favourite, which is feed hungry people. Uh, it's which, pretty simple. Yes. Are there others that strike you as incredibly simple things that we should be doing? I mean, you could stop forcibly humiliating us. That, that would be great. I mean, the trouble with policy recommendations is, A, I have no academic background. I damn well know it. Nobody's going to listen to policy recommendations from a night cook. Like, what do I know about policy? The first time I give a policy recommendation, somebody's going to say, show me your data. And I'm going to say, I don't actually know how to research the data. I've just actually lived it for a decade. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I know or how much intellect I have or how much my reasoning is. None of that matters in the face of somebody who has a degree and proof that they could sit through all of those classes and pull all of that data. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have a place, and I'm not saying you should let the night cooks run the country because, oh, God, don't, don't do that. Um, but what I am saying is that when you are making your own policy recommendations, keep in mind the human cost of them. For example, in Florida right now, um, they're drug testing welfare recipients, right? Because uh, as we all know, everybody on welfare is also very high. Um, we've got a lot of spare cash and extra time, actually, to be high all the time. That's why we're poor. Um, no, and what they found was they had a couple of percent couple of percent. The government spent three times as much catching a few people who had smoked some weed on the weekend as they did, you know, actually giving money to poor people. So what that looks like to me is you would rather take money out of the hands of the social welfare programs to punish us for ever enjoying anything that we, you think is naughty, right? And, and not only that, but you get to tell me what's naughty, you get to decide for me because that's a moral judgment you get to make. Because when public money comes to the poor, we think of it as our money that we are giving to them benevolently. When public money goes to the wealthy, we think of it as something that they have earned. 
and then we don't have to like you know moralize with them because they have enough money they can clearly they're intelligent they can make their own moral decisions but the poor the poor we have to be paternalistic to the poor we have to guard from themselves the poor we have to be certain that they're not going to screw themselves up too much because we just can't trust those guys if they knew what the hell they were doing they wouldn't be so poor Instead of looking at the fact that unemployment is at record levels, and regardless of the new unemployment numbers coming out of the United States, let me tell you, that doesn't count all of the people who stop looking for work. It does not count all of the people who would love a 40-hour-a-week job and are stuck at a job that they are contractually obligated to never work more than 28 hours at which is a thing they do to us. You go in, you sign up, they say, we're not going to work you more than 28 hours a week, and we're going to need you to sign this contract stating that you will not get another job because we might need you to be available at hours that are off your schedule. But it's my fault, right, that I'm not doing better. And, and that is why you were allowed to tell me uh, whether or not I'm allowed to smoke or whether or not I'm allowed to buy a steak for my husband's birthday on food stamps, right? That's another one we get is, oh, it's public money. Why are you buying fancy food? You should be in a hair shirt eating gruel and anything more, right? Anything more is just luxury. It's like, there's, there's actually a really famous, what, what is it, with all the dudes sitting around like, luxury, we, we lived in a, you know, that one, right? Somebody knows it. Somebody knows it. There you go. Four Yorkshiremen, right? It's essentially that, right? Where we're like... What do you mean you bought Doritos that one time? That is three entire dollars. Have you thought about how many boxes of oatmeal you could buy for that? <laughs> yes, yes, I have. You know, I bought Doritos. I wanted them. They taste good. And I was having my friends over. And for once, I was going to contribute to this communal pot. So yes, I spent $3 on Doritos. You have any Americans in the room, I want you to know I have spent your tax dollars on Doritos. It has happened, and you have my sincerest apologies for that. <laughs> but I would like an apology back for all of the money you took from me to go to school with that I paid into the pot with my taxes that, that you then took and used to finance your institutions that got you to where you are. And I would like an apology for that. And then we can have a chat after you've apologized for going to school and I've apologized for eating a bag of Doritos. Then we can get together and have a chat about how the public pot should be distributed and, and who should be judging who for what. And, and so I don't make policy recommendations because my point isn't that the policies are on or off or good or bad. My point is that the policies are inhuman. My point is that I should not have to pee in a cup in front of three people, one of whom is male, to feed my, my child. My point is that I should not have to justify my sexual history to a government worker, ever, for any reason. And the fact that those are the policies that we have now tells me that the people who are making the policy recommendations have no idea what they're on about. They're looking at the data, and it's bloodless, and it's inhuman, and it's amoral, because data has no morality. People have morality, and what you find in public policy is that if you get the wrong people applying this amoral data to a moral quandary, and they're not thinking of it properly, you're going to come out with an immoral result. And the policies that we have are immoral, so I am not the person to make a recommendation. I am just here to tell you that we are doing it wrong at the moment. I don't know what the solution looks like. That's up to those of you that have the data and know what to do with it. 
which is why I'm here talking to all of you, saying, please, when you go forward using your data and your degrees and your knowledge and the things that you have gotten at high cost to yourselves, don't think I don't know that because I dropped out of school because it was so damn hard the first time. I mean, I know exactly what you're up against, and it's worse than I ever did. It's, it's way more intense than anything I've ever done. And when you take that knowledge and move forward, remember the human impact of the things that you were doing. And I think as well, a couple of points back. Sorry, that, that was yes. fantastic. Uh, a couple of points back. The, the point that you make in the book as well about how expensive it is to be poor and how, how relatively expensive it becomes because you have to think short term. Right. And you can't invest. So, um, you know, startup capital, it's a thing. Uh, initial investments are a thing. And if you have no money, it's very hard to make an initial investment in anything. So, for example, everybody has to buy toilet paper. I don't care who you are, everybody buys toilet paper. Now, if you're wealthy, you go to a bookstore and you buy 50 rolls at, say, 50 cents a piece. If you're poor, you can't afford that $50, so you wind up at the corner store buying a single roll at $1.27 a piece. If you are poor and you have medical bills, you don't have insurance, you're going to wind up with terrible credit. What does that mean? 27 29%, 32% APR. Anytime you need any credit for anything. If you're wealthy and you can pay your bills on time, what do you get? 7 6 5%, right? If you can afford a car that runs well and you can afford to maintain that car, that car is going to get you a lot of mileage. We had in America, this lady was like, I wrote, wrote a think piece about how she went to get food stamps in her BMW um, because she'd fallen on hard times. Legitimately, like her husband lost his job and then he had a degenerative illness and she couldn't find work. And they have this one asset left. Like this one thing. And she took it down to the WIC office because this woman had no idea how the lower classes work because she drove a friggin' Beamer. And she drove it into the WIC office and then she wondered why everybody kind of was a little like, what are you doing here? Hi. Are you, oh, you're getting welfare like the rest of us. Oh, great. And what she didn't think about was that somebody who drives a Beamer to the welfare office, we are all looking at her going, oh, you're one of the judgmental guys. Oh, hey, look, you're here with us now. That's how easy it is to fall. Because our cars are beat up, because our cars cost us three times as much in gas mileage, because my, the last car I bought to drive an hour to work and back was $400. That's how much the whole car cost me. Let me tell you about the gas mileage in that thing, right? So I spend more on gas because I cannot afford a fuel-efficient car. So it's a question of do you have the money up front? And if you don't, you're going to wind up spending more. This is why people buy things that are insured. They buy stuff new because there's warranties. You can't buy stuff new if you're poor. So what happens? You buy something old, secondhand, likely to break soon, and then you replace it. And then you replace it again. If you're wealthy and you can afford a nice fridge, dude, you just pop for the nice fridge, right? Like, it might suck. You might not go out to dinner a couple of times. It might even be pinchy. You put it on your 5% APR credit card, whatever. But then something happens, the company replaces it for free for you. It's like the, the more money you have, the more free things they throw at you. As soon as you can prove you don't need it, everybody goes, well, clearly you're responsible. We should give you more. But if you need it, then, you know, well, you know, I, I don't know. They might buy Doritos or possibly smoke some weed on the weekends. We just can't have that. Like, human beings enjoying themselves and having parties, that's the travesty. So, you know, really, when you get down to it, like, it is expensive to be poor, period. It is more expensive to be poor than it is to be wealthy. Now, do you spend more when you're wealthy? Yes, but they are elective expenses. 
Uh, we're talking bare minimum survival. It is more expensive to be poor. Take away all of the nice things. Get yourself a basic apartment with basic appliances, a basic vehicle to get around in. Look at the difference in, in long-term cost to somebody who does not have the money up front or somebody who does. And I promise you, you will find that the poor person winds up spending more in the long term. Like, we rent our furniture. We rent it because we don't want to get involved in payments because we already have crappy credit. And if we could even get approved, why would we get ourselves into that trap? So we rent it. And it costs us three times as much as it would just go down to the store, right? But if we lose our jobs, all we have to do is get back the furniture. And in the meantime, we have it. And maybe we get lucky. Maybe nothing goes wrong. Maybe we can make all the payments. And maybe at the end of it, we have a bed. And that is pretty freaking awesome. We enjoy beds. We enjoy refrigerators and microwaves and computers because without the internet, <laughs> okay, Get ahead. Get ahead in life. Learn things. Get a job. But don't have internet access because that would be a luxury of the computer, right? No, we want the computers. We want the technology. We want all of those things. We want to participate in the economy. But it's expensive. One last one for me, and then I'll hand you over to the audience. Sure. I was looking at your Twitter feed the other day and was amazed to see that you wrote that you were very impressed by the standard of debate on the Guardian Commenters Free section, which led me to imagine that you must have had an incredible backlash in the U.S. And how, is, how has the book been received differently here and in the U.S.? I, I mean, you guys are super polite. <laughs> oh, my God. Listen, I, I, and again, I come from Gawker. Those of you who know Gawker know exactly what I mean when I was like, the polite people are awesome. Um, in, in America, people question my humanity in a lot of ways. And they question the validity of my experience and my opinion and whether or not I even had a right to speak, whether or not I could be trusted to speak. In Britain... Everybody just really wanted to know why I'd wear a bad religion shirt on the cover of The Guardian. And to be clear, I totally forgot it was a cover shoot. Um, <laughs> and there I was in my bad religion shirt. Uh, it's a great band. You guys should, and some of you should check it out. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in the, the, this comment section here was people saying, I disagree, and here is my evidence why. Does anybody have a repost? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I totally do. So I actually uh, signed in. I got myself an account. Um, and, and I used my normal screen name, Killer Martinis. And, and I went to the comments section. And I, people were like, well, I don't understand this or that. And so I started to explain it. And people would be like, that actually makes sense. Thanks for that. <laughs> and in America, <laughs> I did exactly the same thing on my own piece. I went in and started explaining it. And people were like, die in a fire. Um, because... In, in Britain, the and, and I don't know, I've been here for four days, so let me make a sweeping generalization about an entire class of people. Um, but in Britain, you understand the value of a connected society to the point that you say it is important that new mothers have time with their children, and you will fund that, and you will make sure that they have housing, and you will be sure that those children can bond and that that family is strong. I got eight days maternity leave unpaid. So, you know, whatever that says about our cultural differences, there you go. I love your comment sections. That's where, like, that's kind of where I'm going to leave it. So we'll now throw open the comments from the audience. Does anybody have a question they'd like to ask Linda? Okay, here's how all of these events go. 
nobody's going to have a question, and about three in, everybody's hand goes up. So <laughs> if you have one, start now. We have a brave gentleman down here in the front. Do it. If you can wait for the mic to reach you. Oh, hey, look at this. Fancy. Oh, yeah, very posh here. Thank you. Um, so, hi. Um, I'm a student here. My name is Sebastian, and I've lived in the U.S. and now live for about three weeks in England. So I would agree with you that it is very hard to live in the U.S. if you don't have a lot of money. And, I mean, being a student and being really poor is seriously a huge difference. But I would think I could relate to that. What I find when I discuss with people, um, the example that you brought with uh, people in Florida checking on welfare recipients, um, spending so much money is um, the argument that you get a lot is, oh, yeah, but people um, become experts in gaming the system. And I yeah. think this is really hard to argue with because they pick out an example. Oh, I know this one person, you know? Okay, and, and nobody and knows that person. That person <laughs> does not <exist>. I know, <laughs> but that's the hardest to argue with. Uh, I would completely agree with uh, give the money to the people rather than spend it on controls and stuff like that because that's inefficient. But you know, Here, Here's the argument you use, and I'll give you two. Um... <laughs> The first one is, right, but it actually doesn't make any sense financially for the state to do that. Because you might be catching one or two people, right? Um, but you are spending more money than you are saving by such an order of magnitude that it's a silly policy. Like, even if you, even if you say the greatest good is catching these people, you're still saying the greatest good by ten times the amount that you are getting back is, is, is catching these people. Now, secondly, if you are in a position where you are gaming the system for welfare benefits in America, honey, just have the welfare, all right? Because it's not cushy. We don't have the same welfare system that, that, that exists in Britain where there's, like, actual housing. That doesn't exist in the same way. There are housing programs that you've got eight years to be on a waiting list for, and if you move out of the county, you're off the list. Our welfare isn't you just go to the government and then that's, like, the whole country. Our welfare is county to county, state to state. And so essentially to say somebody wants those benefits so badly that they're willing to navigate the system, which is a full-time job in and of itself, because we have separate reporting requirements for every program. So you've got a food program, you've got a, a supplemental food program, because your food stamps actually don't buy enough food. They're not meant to be. It's called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It is not meant to pay for all of your food. There is not a single program in America outside of disability and pensions like and, and Social Security that is meant to cover all of your bills. It's all meant to like help you out if you've got a crappy job. Right? So anybody willing to live at that kind of low level and do that much reporting has probably earned the $200 a month they're going to get. All right? And, and I, would, I would say that more. I would say, how is it your business if somebody chooses to take advantage of a system that is freely available to all citizens? How is it your business what their motivations are? And where does the government get off judging my motivations for a program that is freely available and meant for all of the citizens? What does it matter what your motivations are? Maybe you've got a kid on the way and you want to do better. Maybe you're in school and you need some help with food. Maybe you've had an injury at work and maybe you're just really, really friggin' lazy. It doesn't matter. That program is available to you. It is your right. 
It is your right. You pay into that system and you contribute to that system because the only way you're not contributing is if you've never held a job a day in your life. And I guarantee you, outside of the very disabled, there is no American that has never held a job a day in their friggin' life. And I promise you that we're not reaping all of the benefits that we pay. Dude, we're afraid of the government. You think we're calling for the tax credits we earn? Hell no. That would require us to talk to the IRS, and we are horrifyingly afraid of the IRS. And so whether or not somebody is, is being lazy and entitled is none of your damn business. And that would be the answer that I gave. Butt out. Why, why does it bother you? Why does it bother you? Why does it bother? Why is this the thing that bothers you? Why is the business lunch not the thing that bothers you? Why is paying for martinis for people who could damn well afford them themselves not the thing that bothers you? You really going to go on about a couple of hundred dollars in hot dogs? Really? Oh, I don't think so. Uh, anyone else? Gentleman at the back there with the glasses. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about um, at what at what point do people just reject the system and opt out or choose to? effectively break the rules of the game to get ahead. And the second we realize that everybody else is doing it and we're the jerks. When the bankers decided to come up with synthetic collateralized debt obligations, which nobody can still explain, there's not a banker on Wall Street that can explain a synthetic CDO. But they made millions, and they damn near ruined the entire world. And that was the moment when I went, I am out for everything I can get, because that is how our system works, and that is how you win in this system. When we realize that we are being put in a losing position because we're actually not greedy enough, because we aren't that entitled, because we actually, dear God, thought if we just worked hard for a while, everything would work itself out, that is when we give up and start trying to get everything that we can. And, oh, honey, trust me, I did, because I'm not dumb. And, and when I see people who are supposed to be my betters, the people who run the world, the people who are being rewarded for their behavior, taking everything they can get with no regrets and refusing to apologize, that is when I start to do exactly the same thing. Because as it turns out, the lower classes emulate the behavior of the upper. So I don't know. I'm going to go with like a five or ten year lag after the upper classes started doing it. It's quite precise. <laughs> Anybody that clapped also want to ask a question? Oh, this lady here with the striking bandana. Oh, we have two microphones. This is awesome, you guys. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for speaking. Um, my name's Gemma. I, want, um, I don't want to say this because I want to validate what I'm going to say because I think people should be able to say this stuff anyway, but um, I grew up in uh, two, two children. My mum uh, couldn't afford to go back to work because childcare would be more expensive than the way she'd get as a part-time nurse. Um, and... Again, like, I have quite a posh accent, and what you said kind of struck quite close to me, that people kind of go, well, you've got quite a posh accent. It was my grandad kind of had some middle-class aspirations and made me sit down and learn the difference between a boot and a boot. Um, and um, something you said about uh, what kind of happened to you and why... Um, so you said that... Um, Kind of for all the people that get pulled up and get given a book deal or happen to strike it lucky, all those sorts of things, there's still a section of people in society that 
do those jobs and do those things and are working different part-time jobs to try and make ends meet and all those sorts of things. I thought it was very, very interesting. And you kind of said, well, um, you don't kind of advise on policy because you don't have the data for that stuff. But um, there's, so the, I wanted to tell you about um, and see, ask what you think about it. It's a, a group of women in uh, East London, E15, who were in a, um, a shelter for uh, well, for single mums, but mainly uh, sufferers of domestic abuse um, who'd been put there. And they're, they're, this is owned by one of the local councils um, who have decided to sell this off. And this is being sold off to build kind of big, big... Um, Condos, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so big, big um, right. areas of housing for people who are very rich. Um, they were being moved out of London. Mm-hmm. And these, these people, poor people don't have data, they haven't studied this stuff. They started a campaign about it. Yep. Um, and they're running and they kind of occupy, there was another housing estate quite nearby that had been closed down and was standing empty waiting for it to be sold to rich developers and they ran a campaign and occupied that housing estate. And I wondered what you thought about, like, sure, people have data, people study stuff. Um, that's good. It'd be helpful to have some of that data and share some of that data. But I wonder what you thought about actually the stuff that we can say about how we change the world. Um, and the stuff those women in East London are saying about how we change the world. Damned um, if you're not doing it right now. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Look at it this way. People who are in a marginalized position, people who have no power, people who have been taught their entire lives that their place is to shut up and look down. Having the guts to stand up and say, absolutely not, this is too far, you don't get to take that bit of humanity away from me too. Abused women being kicked out to make way for a high rise, and people are morally okay with this? Honey, you look them in the face and say, where is your morality? That's how we make the change. You look people in the face and you say, justify this to me. Please, I want to see you try. And you don't apologize. And you don't dance around. And you don't make them comfortable. And you don't say, I'm so sorry if it hurts your feelings. But would you mind taking a moment to tell me about, you know, your feelings on domestic violence sufferers and why they shouldn't be given every absolute chance in the entire world by this society? You don't apologize and you don't beat around bushes. You look them in the face and you demand answers. And that is what these women are doing. These women are taking back power that they have never had. They have never known power like this. They have just gotten the guts to get out of the most terrifying situations a human could possibly be in. You are under more stress in a domestic violence situation than you are as a combat veteran. Because as a combat veteran, they train you how to psychologically deal with that danger and that fear. I know this. I'm married to a Marine. A domestic violence victim is in a state of war with no equipment, and she is ashamed of herself, and she is afraid to tell anybody, and they have already taken that step, and sweetie, they don't need our help anymore. They need us to stand next to them and let them tell their own stories, because that is how they get their power back, and once they've got that, they'll go out and change the world themselves, and we can go out on our own paths and do our own changing. What we do is continue to tell everybody else, hey, these ladies would like a word. That's what we do. And what they do is they take the words and they say them out loud, unafraid. And you tell your mother 
that everybody who ever gave her any shit for raising you when it was the financially responsible thing to do and moreover the ethically responsible thing to do to take care of the two of you, you tell her I told them they could all kiss my ass, okay? <laughs> Another question? One from the side, so this lady down the front, please. If I can just make an observation and, and then ask you a question. This gentleman here was talking about, you were talking about drug, drug testing. Yeah. And it seems to me it's not about being economically efficient, it's about making an example of people. Oh, yeah. And my question is, why is it that rich and fortunate people hate poor and unfortunate people? Because our decisions are messy. Because we remind people that humanity is messy, that it isn't pretty. We don't drink nice wine out of nice glasses. We drink a Mickey's on the side of the road. All right? Our drug abuse rates are actually the same across classes. The difference is, do you put a needle in your vein, or do you smoke something, or do you pop a couple of pills? They're exactly the same vices all the way across. And so when they see our vices being visible, it's incredibly impolite. You shouldn't show people your vices. That's just not done. You think everybody in this room hasn't used a curse word once or twice? And did you see the inhalation of breath when I said shit? <laughs> Hands up for anybody who's never sworn in their life, even privately. <laughs> you don't publicly be impolite. And if somebody is so churlish as to be publicly impolite, then clearly they are not fully grown adults and we should know better. The difference is that politeness is a thing that comes with ease. Politeness is a thing that you can do when you're not exhausted. Politeness is a higher brain function. And so what people associate, they say, oh, you're not operating at higher brain function. And instead of saying, how do we get all of these people to the place where they can do that, because clearly they have that, they go, well, clearly you're all monkeys. Right? And you must be regulated. And we must make examples. We have a thing in America called the school-to-prison pipeline because racism, it is alive and well. Young brown men go to jail directly from elementary school because they misbehaved. There's a kid that went to jail, I'm not even kidding you, in handcuffs who was nine years old because he refused to sit down before recess. Now, at the very same school, the same school year, different teacher, different classroom, there was a white kid, same years, like same grade, everything, who punched a girl repeatedly in the face and was suspended in school for a day. All right? So when we are regulating people, we are making a moral decision about our own implicit bias. And sometimes, it turns out, the biases that humans have are not pretty. But we don't see those biases come out amongst the wealthy or towards the wealthy because we're supposed to want to be the wealthy. And what I keep saying is, I, I don't understand why. I don't understand why I'm supposed to want to be rich. Like, clearly I'm doing okay now, and that's, <laughs> I like the pillows and the liquor up here, you guys. The wine really is better. Um, but I don't know why I'm supposed to want to be rich. I mean, that's a whole other set of problems, dude. It's an entirely different society. I don't know any of these rules. I say shit in the LSE. 
Like, I do not know what I'm doing. I'm night cook. You know what I always wanted was to know that my bills would be paid and that at the end of the day, I could go home after a solid eight hours of work and have dinner with my family. That's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted. I don't want to be rich. I never, I never aspired to wealth. And the idea that a whole group of people would be like, well, we have it, and this is how we want to roll, and it works really well for us, so everybody else should want it too, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you, it tells me something about the people who are justifying their own decisions, because it seems to me that you wouldn't feel like everybody needed to be like you if you weren't doing some justifying of your own. If you didn't inherently think that you needed to say this is the best and only way to roll, that's why everybody should want to be like me. I kind of don't. I'm glad for people who do. I mean, if that's what you want to do, like, listen, some people like sparkly things, and I am not about to grudge that to you. Like, I, it turns out, like, shoes an awful lot. <laughs> you know? But I could do without them, and it wouldn't harm me in any way. Now, I know a couple of women who like shoes way more than I do. It is their hobby, and it would absolutely harm them if they had no access to these heels. Like, I know those women. <laughs> they exist. And so they need to be wealthy to get the thing that they want. The thing that I want is different. I don't understand why the thing that I want is better or worse than the thing that anybody else wants. Right? Hands? Questions? Can I, can I just come in on that? Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting because there's, there's something we've been hearing much more about in the UK recently, which there's a phrase that's been coined, which is the politics of envy. The idea that when you come in and start arguing for greater redistribution of wealth, that what you're actually, it's not a positive motivation, it's a negative motivation, that actually you're angry about what other people have and you want it. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, we have so much free time on our hands that we just obsess about Kim Kardashian and the mansion that she has and like how we're really ready to get the pitchforks out and get it. I mean, it's the silliest thing ever. We're not mad because you have things. It's great that people are comfortable. Everybody should be comfortable. It's lovely to be comfortable comfortable, right? And I don't begrudge that to anybody. What I begrudge is people being comfortable and then saying, okay, but you're doing it wrong because you're not comfortable. I am envious of the kind of entitlement it takes to judge my morality from the outside. That's the envy that we're talking about. Rich people mistake that. I am envious of the wealthy because the wealthy never think twice about what anybody else might think. They simply don't care. You're like, I got the money, whatever. I'm going to roll through Walmart and like a top hat. I, I don't know what rich people do. <laughs> like, I wish they did that. I kind of, maybe we can make it a thing. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is, is I don't envy the stuff. The stuff is stuff. I learned to live without stuff ages ago. Stuff is fun. Stuff is nice. It's just stuff. You can't take it with you, man. I envy and am angrily envious about the ability to be yourself, to be actualized. You don't get that on the bottom. You were never allowed that sense of entitlement because the second you get it, honey, somebody's going to say, listen, <laughs> tone it down a bit. You're not allowed to ask for those things. You're not allowed to feel that comfortable because your place is here. I am envious of a life in which nobody tells you what your place is. I'm envious of the freedom. And I am angrily envious of it because I am an American. And listen, I don't know how y'all roll in the mother country. But in my country, we are all equal. And we are all citizens. And we are all guaranteed freedom. 
We are all guaranteed a life of the mind. Look, John Locke would be pissed at us right now. Because he said, not only do you have a right to demand that, but you have a responsibility to take it. If somebody ever tries to take it away from you, you have a responsibility to make sure that the government provides that to every citizen. And if you don't, you're the one that's failing. And then I got a bunch of people telling me you're not allowed to demand that. No, I've read philosophy too. Guys, books are free. You can go and read them. Whatever you want. It's like magic libraries. All right? And so you come to it with that knowledge that you are supposed to be able to be an autonomous adult. And somebody tells you, no, you can't. Yeah, hell yeah, I'm envious of that. But the stuff, keep the stuff. I don't care about the stuff, man. Lady in the back with the blonde hair. Oh my god, they're event stewards. That's awesome. <laughs> we have everything here. No, um, I just was reading the back that all the words are different. <laughs> I think this is more an observation than a question. Sure. But um, it sort of seems like there's like a needs to be like a rebalancing in terms of money. Not like not power sort of power and monies. And I had a friend who um, worked in a sort of disability sort of care home but it was for adults who couldn't who sort of needed supported help and um she when she looked after them she was the sole responsible adult and was there for 12 hours and you know their life was in her hands and if anything happened she it was on her head uh and she was paid minimum wage if not below that and a job at the same place went in an office and they were paid 10k more than she was and it wasn't so much that she was angry that the person being in the office was being paid more than her it was more the devaluing of what she was doing as a human being and the fact that surely actually you need if you want people to be looked after, or I suppose it's what you're saying about the bottom, you know, you need people to do the bottom bit of jobs, but actually you need to value them and you need to be able to give them enough that they can live and that they're not, they're not sort of, I don't really know where I'm going with this, sorry, but like just, I think, I think there's that problem that people see people doing caring jobs and sort of think that they can be paid less and then sort of blame them when things don't happen, but you have to wonder why that happens. So my dad worked for DuPont for 35 years. They gave him a pension, they gave him benefits, he had a couple of weeks paid vacation every year, he had, you know, that stuff. More than that, he could count on his job still being there, assuming he didn't, like, completely screw up somehow, right? And now, my employer looks at me and says, I am going to pay you the least amount possible. I'm going to take your time, I'm going to take your value, I'm not going to train you, I'm going to treat you as interchangeable. I'm going to treat you as interchangeably as possible to pad my bottom line. And oh, also, I'm going to need you to smile. So the question isn't how do we pay a living wage because that will, like, look, the markets are whatever and you can argue Adam Smith and invisible hands and, like, I don't, you guys do that better than I do and I'm not going to waste your time with it. Wages will work themselves out eventually. What I'm on about is respecting people for the work that they do and saying in exchange for you working your ass off for me and literally, like, look, I've got scars all over my body from the fryers and from the pigs, and from all of the jobs that I've worked. I have degraded myself. I have harmed myself. I have done permanent damage to my body in exchange for this paycheck. And maybe, just maybe, you could look at me and say, I appreciate your sacrifice. We'll take care of you. 
you know, are you sick? Go home for an hour. Go sleep in your car. We had a woman die of carbon monoxide poisoning because she was sleeping in her car in between her three jobs. Because her bosses couldn't give her the basic respect of scheduling her far enough in advance that she could actually make a plan to sleep. Because we don't get our schedules until the day before the week starts. Right? Because you're scheduled from 10 to 2, but if the customers don't show up, you might get sent home at noon. Or if they do, you might have to stay until 5. And you don't have that choice. But they schedule you in 15-minute increments so that they can be sure to never pay a penny more to a worker than they need to. And we know that they do this. And they tell us this. They're not even giving us the amount of respect of not telling us how in, like, completely unvaluable we are to them. They don't even bother with that anymore. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, wages, great. Raise my wages, give me benefits. That would be like, listen, do that, you guys. Let's make that happen. Um, but first, maybe we could be human. And then suddenly you'll see the wages and benefits come back into line. Because if they look at us as though, they are, as though we are human, they will feel a responsibility for us because we are working for them, and so they need to take care of us. And that's kind of where it starts. That's why I don't worry about the policies. I don't worry about the wages because we don't look like humans to people. And if we can look like humans, then suddenly all of the policies come into line because who would do that to another human being? Nobody would do that to another human being. So the only conclusion I can draw is that I am not actually a human in all of these policies to all of these people making all of these roles. Do you think as well that women are less human? Because I, I think we are sold this idea that you get paid what you're worth. Well, I mean, I'm worth about 73 cents to every man's dollar then, right? And also that the work that, it, that women traditionally do is of less value, even if it is life-saving. But it even goes further than that. I mean, you can look at women, okay, great, but let's look at all the marginalized communities, right? Because we know that if you're a black man, you're going to make more than a white woman. But if you're a black woman, you're going to make less than a white woman. And we know that if you're a Latina woman, you're going to make somewhere in between a black woman and a white woman. And we know that a Latina man is actually going to make less than a white woman because he must be an immigrant. Definitely hopped the border like yesterday, right? We know that those biases play out. That's what the data tells us, is that we rank people based on their gender and race and say you are worth more or less for the same job depending on how I think you might perform because, well, I'm kind of an asshole like that. And it's even more than that, because it's not, I mean, it's, look, it's not that at all. What it is is implicit societal bias, right? Like, there is no one company that you can point at and say, you should do better. People like to point at Walmart. They like to point at the Koch brothers. They like to point at all these individual millionaires. Look, they are participating in the market in the way that the market demands. The first company to say, we're going to pay our workers a decent wage and benefits, and we're going to pay everybody the same, and we're going to give everybody raises, that company goes under in like a year max, if they make it through the quarter, because we don't think in years anymore, we think in fiscal quarters because we have shareholders, right? The first company to stick their neck out goes down. So does the second one, so does the third one, so do all of them. This is a societal problem. You can't point an individual company or an individual billionaire any more than you can point an individual poor person and say, explain being poor. Well, it's 45 million of us, guys. <laughs> like we get, We're all over the map. Right? And so are the companies. But we are all responding to the same market 
and the same conditions. So the question isn't how do we change the behavior of one company on one issue. It's how do we change the conditions and the incentives that everybody's operating under. And if we can do that, then we change the world. And there's the answer to your question, too. Lady down the front here. Hi. Um, my question is about um, sort of the U.S. media's sort of representation of people on welfare. You know, like I said, just using the money to buy seafood or fridges and, and you know, that kind of that, that stigma there. Do you feel that there's any – is it a lost cause or is there any scope for sort of hope of representation of voices like yourself or is the Internet just is, – is the U.S. media a lost cause and the Fox News sort of side of things? Um, or is the internet really the only place where you feel like you can express yourself? Um, I mean, they gave me a book deal, so that's one. I no, John Stewart actually had a great bit about that. Like, oh, I don't think I'll finish this milk today. Let me put it back in my fridge. You know, very posh to have a fridge. Um, Look, the, the media is what it is. Like, it's it sex sells, blood sells, destruction sells, porn sells of whatever stripe, whether it's war porn or like violence or people in floods, whatever. Right? They sensationalize. They do their best to make it this one thing. That media trend is true, whether we're talking about poverty or race or war or U.S. politics or international politics. Like, you should see what we hear about Vladimir Putin. Like, it's all tigers. It's all shirtless tigers. That's all we know about Russia. Shirtless tigers. <laughs> and I, you got to admire the panache of shirtless tigers, really. But, it, I mean, it's, it's a, such a broad question. I don't know. I don't know. Dude, the internet revolutionized everything. We are going through another industrial revolution. It's one of the reasons we're seeing stratification on the level that we are, right? Because we've been here when we got coal or the internet, whichever, and suddenly everything globalizes and it's a brave new world. Nobody knows what the hell to do and all we know is that the workers are getting screwed. But a lot of people are making a lot of money. And the press, as always, and let me tell you, the press has always done this. Like, you can go back into the actual Industrial Revolution, read the press clippings. It's, it's just as bad as it is now. What's the solution? I don't know. I'm screaming as loudly as I can. I know a bunch of other people that are doing the same thing. I'll talk wherever they'll let me. That's my answer. I would love to have lunch with Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> really? Uh, anyone from this side of the room? We haven't had many from over here. A gentleman in the pink shirt? In your estimation, how much social, upward social mobility is there in America? It, from what I've read, um, people seem to be embedded in their social stratification from birth. That's to say, if you're born into a, a working-class urban environment, you're going to go to a, a, a very bad city school. Uh, you'll probably, with luck, maybe go to a community college. Uh, the best companies don't hire from community college. Whereas, if you come from a, a suburban, um, middle-class uh, environment, you're going to go to a better school. You'll go to probably to a good university. Your parents will be able to take out student loans to pay for that. Um, you work hard. Are you telling me the wealthy have it easier than the poor? But what I'm saying is how many people escape from a working class environment? Luck. 
and the hardest work you've ever seen, harder than any CEO's ever put in. But it's mostly luck. Did you get lucky enough to have a teacher at that underprivileged school who happened to be very good at teaching and also happened to personally connect with you and happened to mentor you through? Did you get access to their professional networks? Did they teach you how to dress? All right? I mean, the class indicators are so, and let me tell you because I'm now learning, and I get a pass because I came up, I got famous for a thing that I called why I make terrible decisions. I set the bar nice and low for myself. (laughs) And then I became uh, more famous when I took my teeth out on the internet and we had a nice chat about the state of dental care. And then I became more famous when I wrote a book in which, I'm not kidding, there's an entire chapter about sex. And my publishers have a hard time finding, like, enough paragraphs in a row that they can read excerpts on family channels. Okay? So for me, I go into these spaces and I get a bit of a pass because nobody's expecting much as far as being high class. But if you're coming up from the bottom and you're trying to actually fit in, instead of saying, this is who I am and I refuse to change, and I'm so sorry if it makes you uncomfortable and I'll try to be polite, but sometimes it doesn't work out so well for me. Um, the, The class markers are hard to learn. You learn about networking when you're at, like, networking events, when you're growing up. When, like, I, I know a dude who played lacrosse. And he tells me, I learned half my business stuff in lacrosse because those are the sorts of people I was talking to, and I spent all my time with them, and now I know how they communicate. And if I hadn't been lucky enough to get the scholarship to this prep school, I would never be able to survive in a business environment because I would have all of these quiet things, and I wouldn't know what they were talking about in meetings, and I wouldn't know the shorthand or the buzzwords, right? So, I mean, upward mobility totally exists, but I'll tell you what, it's much easier to just wait for them to find you on the Internet and hand you a book than it is to actually make it up and out in the way that most people think you can because we do not allow people to just work hard and be smart anymore. That's not how you make it. You make it with connections. You make it by fitting in, and that's always been true to an extent, but it's getting more and more that way. So I don't know what upward mobility looks like, dude. I skipped all those steps. I've been trying for a decade. (laughs) And then I bitched on Gawker one night after I was two beers in. And (laughs) hi, guys. That's what upward mobility had to look like for me. And and it turns out I'm actually kind of intelligent. And I'm actually really hardworking. And it should not have looked like this. I should have been okay on my own merit. Because I did what you were supposed to do. I made my mistakes. I repented. Right? And then I grew up and got a job. And then I got another job, and then I got a third job. And that should have been enough, and it wasn't. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. What I do know is that it's mostly impossible. And that is how hard it was for me with as lucky as I was, because I did have a preschool teacher for a mother, and I was taught to love learning for its own sake. That was drilled into me since I was a kid. I'm white. Do you know how lucky I am for that? I'm able-bodied. I'm able to lift 50 pounds repeatedly. I can stay on my feet for hours. I can do all of those things. I'm good with people. I'm gregarious. I'm naturally talented at customer service. I mean, all of these things I had going for me, and here is how hard it still sucked. So imagine somebody who was just born kind of with a middling brain. Imagine somebody who was born with a physical disability. Imagine somebody who was born with a little bit more melanin 
which is the silliest thing I've ever heard, but damned if it's not one of the most sticking in our societies. And here is how hard it was for me, being young and attractive and well-spoken and reasonably well-educated and white. And here is how hard it was for me. So I don't know the answer. I wish I did. If I did, I could probably sell it for about $10 million and take care of poverty. But as it turns out, I don't think there is one. I think it goes back to that societal change. Do we want to make it possible for our children to succeed, or do we want to make sure that we're not letting anybody succeed who hasn't earned it the right way? And that's the decision we're facing. And right now we're going with the latter. One more. Uh, gentleman in the blue check shirt at the back. Uh, thank you. Just a comment, really, on the question. Um, the, um, the, well, unfortunate circumstances in America, you've told us about, uh, obviously paralleled across the world, especially here in London, where I was born and brought up. And um, just a comment is the, actually the poverty for most people is, as you say, trying to get a job to keep a roof over their heads. And the, for me, the biggest problem in, in this in British society, especially in London, is a total inaffordability of houses or somewhere to live, a home. And rather than looking after people, as you say, with um, who need, not who want to, but who need to work at two or three jobs, the powers that be, the government and the rich establishment, are looking after the people who don't need, but who want to own two, three, four, five 25 houses and this is a craziness of the total lunacy and when we see house prices shooting up day by day in London they're saying oh housing boom well, it's not boom it's gloom but if houses go down in London oh dear what a shame um, we need to kickstart the housing market instigate your recovery and I can't think if, if, if milk goes up a penny or something or five cents it's terrible but if houses go up hundreds of thousands of pounds it's wonderful for those who've got them and you know and in America when they had these um, uh subprime where they call it crashes and the poor people got evicted or they couldn't afford the rent and then they got houses empty and in England they had the, the, the well I think total immorality to say uh, build your own property portfolio become a property millionaire by buying up houses cheap in America now and I thought hold on a minute those houses don't belong to us English, British, whoever, you know, foreign people. Is they belong to the American people, whatever colour they are, black, white or yellow, who were born there and deserve to live in an affordable sure. place. And no, you know, so, we've been sold this property madness. What I hear you saying is that you would like to regulate the spending of the wealthy. Yeah, and especially they need right. the regulation on rents and house prices. I don't definitely. think you get to do that. Sorry? I don't think you get to do that. No, we don't do it. How they do no, in I'm New York, saying I don't think you get to on a moral level. You do not get to regulate the spending of the wealthy any more than you get to regulate the spending of the poor. What you have to do is make it not worthwhile for the wealthy to be so wasteful. Yeah. Okay? That's a question of, okay, so we spend a lot of energy shaming poor people publicly? Dude, shame the rich. You don't get to regulate as a government how your citizenry spends its money. You don't get to moralize at them as a government. Now, a society, a society is a different thing, and here's what you can do. You can set up any number of programs that buy those houses and put poor people in them. You know what's going to chase out a bunch of wealthy people quicker than anything? A homeless shelter on floor nine. 
buy a house and give it to a bunch of homeless people. Let them run a punk flop house, man. You guys, it's Britain, it's London. Find some punkers and put them in the building. The wealthy people will go away. <laughs> There's any number of ways that you can deal with it without committing the same mistakes because what we need to do is not necessarily just change the direction the mistakes are going in. We need to stop making the mistakes entirely. And so while I agree morally with what you're saying, it's outrageous. Gentrification is a thing, and housing is a commodity. And all of the things that these, like, look, in New York, there's a building. that there, It's the same building, but it's New York, so there's a couple of rent-controlled apartments, right? There is literally a corridor in the back of the building. The front one has a, has a doorman, and it has a, a luxury exercise yard. And because the back is rent-controlled... The, the developer said, oh, they're not paying for these extra things. I mean, dude, we have concierge doctors where you have a spa entrance for the very, very wealthy and you have, like, a normal entrance for the pops. All right? This is an American thing. So I am with you and I'm not saying that I'm not. What I'm saying is we've got to get more creative about how we control societal behaviors than just saying money, money or, or, or you know, government intervention. Put the punks on the seventh floor. That is who's going to do that, though? They won't know how to do it. No, just... We've got a billionaire that actually makes documentaries about what ridiculousness it is to be a billionaire. Like, he's just like, I, I can only buy so many jeans in a year, guys. Don't count on me to save the economy. I can only have my hair cut so many times. You can only own so many cars. You can only create so many jobs. And look at how much friggin' ridiculous amount of cash I have. This is ridiculous. You find that guy. Ask George Soros. Hell, get me and seven other people that have gotten book deals in on a flat, on a share, because I will live with the punks, and it'll be fine. So I'll consider it rent. Right? For every wealthy person who really just existentially hates poor people, and, and they don't exist any more than welfare queens do. Nobody really hates poor people as a class. They're just super uncomfortable. And they don't think about us because they don't know our lives because they don't know us. Nobody actually is actively out to get us. Well, I mean, Paul Ryan, maybe. But, um, you know, look, you just have to change the behavior. And there are ways to do that that aren't just as invasive and just as unfair to people who happen to have been born into money as you as there are for pe that you can change for people who happen to have not been born into money or people who happen to not have any put the punks on the seventh floor another question gentleman at the back there please <clears throat> Hi there. Um, I'm from New Jersey, so I completely understand and agree with... I'm so with sorry. <laughs> I was kind of expecting that, um, but I completely... I'm from Utah, man, so yeah. <laughs> I understand and agree with like every analysis you've had on like American culture and everything regarding like the, the less fortunate. Um, I go to school in Washington, D.C., so I've observed like the biggest stratification you can between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. And I was wondering what your views on just the, the, the system of gentrification or how gentrification affects those involved in like 
poorer societies, I guess, because I've seen it on a massive scale, and I've only been down there for maybe three years, and entire neighborhoods have been wiped out, and people. I'm from to the like outskirts. a super country, like like the, <laughs> the the canyon is in my backyard. Right, So gentrification is a city problem, and it's one that's horrible, and I can see its effects, but I don't necessarily know what they are because I've never spent enough time in one city to actually see it happen. Um, what I can say is it's really interesting to me that every time poor people are in a place, it suddenly gets, like, kitschy, right? And then we see gentrification happen because you got a bunch of poor people, and they're really creative because we have to be because we're working with like markers and flags, and we decorate the place, and it's all full of awesome music and stuff that we do ourselves because everybody's always home, like entertaining themselves because that's what we have the money to do. And then suddenly it becomes really hip, and then the wealthy people are like, "Oh, I should move there and be cool." That's what gentrification is to me. It's them going, "Hey, you're cooler than us. We should live with you." But your stuff isn't actually cool and not like we're gonna have to. Mm-hmm. I need a concierge. <laughs> Desperately need a Starbucks. And if I don't have a Chipotle, my life will end. I mean, in DC, look at the Silver Line, man. Look at the Silver Line. They wouldn't put a metro, a subway, out to the very wealthiest, toniest shopping districts in Washington, D.C. And I am not even kidding. People quoted in the newspaper were like, well, we don't want the poor people coming here. And if we give them a metro, they might discover we exist. A couple miles down the road. Dude, we knew. Everybody was aware that Tyson's Corner existed before they put a metro into Tyson's Corner. What it did was made it harder for the people who work for the wealthy people in Tyson's Corner to get there. Wasn't actually more convenient for anybody. But there was this idea that like, if we just hide and they don't put us on a map, like as long as we're not on the subway map, nobody will, will like, come and make us look uncomfortable. And I don't, like, look, and that is literally just me projecting at the upper classes because I really don't know what the rich people in Tyson's Corner were thinking, but I will tell you that's the joke that every poor person in D.C. is telling. It's like, oh God, they put it on the map. We should all go there now. I mean, you're from D.C., man. I've been, I've been there for a couple of months just for the book, so like, I, I've seen that and, and I definitely went up to Tyson's Corner. I totally did it, man. I hopped on the subway the day the Silver Line opened, and I got off the subway, and I was like, oh, my God, the air smells so good here. <laughs> and then I got back on the subway and went home because I wasn't going to shop at any of the stores. <laughs> I mean, gentrification, it's, it's, it's racially tinged. It's not a thing we do to poor white neighborhoods. Poor white neighborhoods don't have an ethnic feel, so they're not hip. Unless it's like beat poetry, but Ginsburg died years ago, man. Like nobody is nobody is recreating Ginsburg. Now we move into black communities because uh, screw those guys anyway. What's the motivation? Hell if I know. Because it's cheap. Because people that there don't matter as much as poor white people. I don't know what the motivation is. I've been in Ferguson a lot. Racism is a thing, man. And you can't separate it from classism because what it is is dehumanization. And there is no way to separate biases. Either you're the sort of person who is going to act on your inherent biases or not. Look, I'm from the whitest state in the nation. Like, I'll admit to you right now, I'm super uncomfortable with race issues. 
because I am from the whitest state in the nation, and I am friends that people that went to high school with me that I called my friends are now members of the Aryan nation, and they live on the compounds, and that's the background that I'm from, so I can tell you that racism is alive and well in America. Where's the intersection? <laughs> Shit if I know. But it's there, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, because any time you treat somebody as less than human, you are wrong. And it doesn't matter what your motivation is, and it doesn't matter whether it's because of their skin color or their gender or because they are missing a leg, whatever. Any time you treat somebody as less than human, it is wrong. Gentrification exists. I don't know why. That one probably deserved a round of applause as well. Um, we should probably take one more. Hands shut up. Uh, the lady in the front down here, please. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you had any examples of people that you'd come across, either people or organizations, who, whose example should be followed, who are doing really good things to help. Thousands. Thousands of amazing examples. Every time somebody in the social services actually looked at me and cared, that was amazing. We hold on to those moments. Every time somebody's ever walked into one of my stores and not thrown a cheeseburger at me, I appreciate, oh, I didn't, I get mixed up on where the anecdotes are. I was like seven months pregnant working at Burger King in Ohio, visibly pregnant, you guys, like, and this girl in the middle of lunch rush, store full of customers, and we are obviously like slammed, right? She gets a cheeseburger and her mustard is wrong. And so she throws her cheeseburger at me. And if you guys don't all mind me using the vernacular because it's uncomfortable, she says, you stupid bitch, what's wrong with you? Are you this dumb? And nobody stopped it. Nobody seemed to think it was out of the way. Everybody got really uncomfortable and backed up a couple of feet, but nobody looked at me and said, she's not right about you. Thank you for getting my sandwich right because you do this thousands of times in a day and you're allowed one mistake. Nobody said that. But you know what did happen? About an hour later, a guy comes in and he goes, Honey, you look like you're having a rough day. Are you okay? And that moment meant everything. Thousands of people have helped me, and that is how easy it is to be helpful, is when you run into a service worker and they've got that look on their face, or anybody, and they've got that look on their face and it looks like they're having a rough day and they're not being exactly as helpful to you as you think they should be. Maybe they're smiling at you and saying, How can I help you? But it doesn't really feel sincere. Don't demand it be sincere. Dude, they're doing their job. They said, hey, what do you need? Can I help you? Get the thing. Ask them how their day is. Ask them if you can help them. If you see somebody with a heavy box trying to put it up on a high shelf because that's their job and you happen to be taller than them, help them out, dude. That's how you do it. Millions of people have helped me, and it's all been in those small moments because that is what we live in. We live in the moment. And if you can make this moment good for us, if you can give us our humanity back for this moment, you will make our entire day run smoother. We will hold on to that, honey. I remember that all these years later. The look on that guy's face when he said, you look like you're having a rough day. Are you okay? I still, like, I'm, I, it almost makes me cry. Four years later. Four years later. And all he did was the basic, decent, human, polite response to, like, oh, God, woman looks upset. What do I do? Are you okay? That's all he did, was basically polite. That's all we're asking for. That's how little our expectations are. 
maybe some basic common decency once in a while, you guys could try it. Go out and be good to service workers, all of you, because it means the world to us. And, and, and that is how to help. And that's a pretty fantastic note to end on. Thank you.